As the functional approach to medicine continues to evolve, we are now witnessing the emergence of a powerful systems-orientated model capable of addressing the healthcare needs of the 21st century. In April 2016, Bioceuticals will be holding the fourth Bioceuticals Research Symposium to provide healthcare professionals with leading, cutting-edge research, highlighting the future of integrative and functional medicine. We've chosen the world's leading functional medicine experts to show you how they integrate the explosion of research with the latest in genetic science, nutrition and metabolic medicine. For more information, please visit the Bioceuticals website at bioceuticals.com.au. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me in the studio today is Dr. Robert Bust, a man of great renown and uh, a mentor of mine over many, I'm going to say that, I'm going to say it, decades. Oh, goodness <laughs> gracious, Andrew. <laughs> and Bob did his PhD in medicinal biochem, is that right? Medicinal chemistry. Medicinal yeah. chemistry, that's right. It was drug research. Mm. But you expanded your horizons into natural medicine when you got sick. Mm. Didn't you? On, I did. Was it on a trek through the Himalayas, is that right? That's exactly right. I got amoebic dysentery. I saw this amazing charcoal-covered chicken in <laughs> Dharan. Yeah. They just opened up the eastern border of Nepal. Yeah. And we were the first through. There was no, no hotels or anything. Anyway, we were hungry, and this charcoal chicken worked out to be flies that were on the cooked chicken. <laughs> <laughs> was covered in black. So, of course, well, I'm munching away at this and uh, and our alarm to get the bus the next morning was a candle and when it got down to a certain amount, I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll get up. And I was as sick as a dog. We got into Kathmandu and I was vomiting and diarrhoea the full... And I had amoebic dysentery. Wow. And it ended up I was bleeding from the bowel and I'd, I lost... Uh, in stone, I, I don't know what that is in kilogram, but it was about uh, four stone in weight I lost. And I met a guy on the, on the bus coming the other direction whose friend had just died from amoebic dysentery and bleeding at the bowel. So you can imagine how I was feeling. And so where was this where you arrived? This, this is when we... Uh, you were in Kathmandu, but when, where did you arrive when you sought help, basically? Oh, that was in Kathmandu. Oh. Uh, like at, between Dharan, I, I was very sick and I went to the hospital and they uh, put me at the head of the queue, rasped me, and all these people with their arms hanging off and legs that had been, you know, cut off with, with various... This implements. one we can rescue. And this one, yeah, so he, he, was, he was good. He put me through and put me on some uh, metronidazole, some flagell mm. and uh, all the rest of it and... But I, I was as sick as a dog. So how did that open you up to well, nutritional medicine? It's a good question because what it did, being in drug research, of course, uh, it had a, had a background that was very orthodox medicine. And, you know, we were doing pharmacology and we we're testing all of the drugs at Sydney Uni on dogs. And, uh, and it just made me think when I got sick and then I got to Turkey and got Giardia Lamblia and the whole thing. And I was doing postdoc in New York State Health Department. And I was sick as a dog for about 18 months, enough for me to say, look, there must be another way because I went to every doctor in the place yeah. and no one could help because I was, you know, in a bit of a mess. So despite recurrent medical treatment, yep. the offending agents kept on recurring. Exactly. So that got me into the library at New York State Health Department and then I saw all these amazing 
um, studies that were going on that you never hear about. Mm. And that got me when I got back to Australia to get out of drug research and into uh, nutritional medicine, so to speak. And that's where how I ended up as a formulator and uh, educator in uh, nutritional medicine and complementary medicine and so on. So today we're going to be talking about ligands, mineral ligands, mm. and, and it's an area which you enlightened me years ago about thinking outside of one or two different compounds. You started to get me thinking about I use this for that and I use a different you know, mineral ligand for another condition and it broadened my horizons. But you know, a lot of it was back in back in those days was driven by commercial interest. Mm, you mm. enlightened me to well, there are these other things, and just because a company says that you should use it for, let's say, sore back, doesn't mean that you can't use this other one. And that's where I I sort of broaden my horizon. So I, you know, I got a personal thank you for that. But I think first of all, we need to go right back to the beginning, and talk about what is a mineral ligand. Mm. So can you give me a, a scientific definition? of a ligand? Well, the main thing is, I mean, salts like potassium chloride, sodium chloride are, are soluble and they just dissolve in water and you get a cation like potassium cations and sodium cations and you get anions like the chloride anion. When you've got a ligand, you've got a, a mineral that is actually combining with another molecule like, for example, uh, chelates, amino acid chelate. And the chelate is a ligand. It could be aspartate, it could be glycinate, um, it could be orotate, it could be uh, methionine, it could be any of these amino acids and, and other lookalike compounds. And when the mineral has vacant orbitals and on an atomic level, yep. like magnesium and calcium, for example, have, have, have a four vacant orbitals. So that means when you bring an amino acid in, the nitrogen has two free electrons and the oxygen has two free electrons. So there's the four. So they can plug in uh, to the actual vacant orbitals on magnesium and calcium. So what you end up is with a, uh, a chelate which is a coordination uh, compound or, uh, in fact, covalently bound uh, where the uh, electrons from the other ligand or ligand from, in this case, an amino acid, but there's a lot of organic molecules that can be ligands. So they attach to the mineral. So the mineral, in fact, can be attached to many different types of, of ligands and these can be organic, and um, the chelates uh, are the most popular, I guess, simply because the, the nitrogen or oxygen or carboxylic acids are all um, able to donate some of those electrons into the vacant orbitals. So when we're talking about a ligand, you've got several different types of ligands. So, for instance, you've got a covalent bond where the electrons are actually shared between the mineral mm -hmm. and whatever it's joined to, mm -hmm. and that's a tighter bond. Yep. Then you've got chelate. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not necessarily a covalent bond, is it? Well, the thing is, it depends on the strength in the organic molecule. So if there's a resonant structure and there's a stabilised resonance with, with aromatic uh, groups, mm -hmm. then you're going to be drawing electrons back into the organic molecule. But other molecules that don't have the same sort of drawing power are going to donate it more. So you, you have a different type of drawing power for... Uh, those orbitals, whether the electrons on the on the oxygen or the nitrogen are going to donate in, in a in a in a very heavy way or just lightly depends on the organic molecule that we're talking about. So, depending on what it's joined to, is depending on 
how well that mineral is going to be absorbed, distributed around the body. Exactly. And that depends on the mineral and the, the structure of the electrons around that particular atom and also the ligand itself and, and the structure of the ligand, the, the molecular structure of the ligand. So, you know, everybody, you mentioned just before table salt and table salt mm. dissociates mm. pretty well so that we get ions. You do. Whereas when you've got a chelate and you take it into your mouth, what happens to that chelate in the digestive juices and in the absorptive lining All of right. the gut? Well, well, firstly, let's, let's go with the, the uh, ionic um, compounds that are inorganic, like sodium chloride, potassium chloride. As soon as they hit the stomach acid, they actually dissociate into the cations and the anions. Uh, this is... Uh, Really important because if you're going to get absorption of those inorganic minerals, they usually will pop on to an amino acid or another ligand, and that's how you get the carrying into the body. Yep. So we do know that in the beginning, I was kind of not real keen on this, but we do know now that inorganic minerals are absorbed. They're absorbed well because yep. we absorb salt, <laughs> sodium, and chloride. We need them very much in our body. And if you were to take some of the... Um, uh, trace elements, say selenium. We know that selenium uh, as a selenate is going to be absorbed 94%. Mm. But if you look at the selenite, so the selenium selenite is not going to be absorbed more than perhaps 59%. Hence, it's quote-unquote safer. Uh, well, that's what they say, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, then if, if selenium can also be bound up to methionine, and that's a ligand, but they're all absorbed. That's the point. And I think that there's a lot of this um, discussion about, oh, we've got 85% absorption, you've only got 70%. So what? I mean, if you're looking does, at does selenium that... and chromium and manganese, these are very small yeah. minerals. Yeah. Uh, add a bit more, you know. I mean, add a bit more to the supplement or, or take more tablets, or, but you're still going to get the absorption. And the other thing that's not often realised is that the absorption of some of these minerals can happen slowly. Mm. Now, this is where I want to discuss. Yeah, further, so yeah. it's the bioavailability is not instant. Yeah. Bioavailability can be slow. So you might have something that's not very bioavailable, but, hey, in the end, by the time it gets down to the end of the small intestine, you know, you've got a lot of absorption having occurred. So the plasma level of whatever it is you're looking at is quite—it's quite up there, but it's taken two hours instead of one minute. You mm. know what I mean? So, so we've got things like uh, table salt mm. versus a mineral like magnesium or calcium, mm. and there's a lot of you know toing and froing about the best form of magnesium. Mm. And this is the thing that you taught me is that well, it depends what you want to achieve, doesn't mm. it? Exactly. If, if you want a bowel clean out, you need grams of magnesium oxide. That's one of the minerals that's found in pico prep, which is a bowel preparation. Exactly. Along with sodium pico. Yeah. And that's an osmotic effect. That's an osmotic. So, so when you start increasing the ions that are actually in the bowel, it's yep. pulling water out of the side of the bowel, yep. and of course you evacuate much more easily with, with a bowel full of fluid. So that's right. And yet if you use smaller amounts of magnesium oxide mm -hmm. more regularly, yes. it doesn't have that osmotic effect because no. it's not enough to draw a huge amount of water. And this is interesting because a lot of people think, I'm going to give a lot of magnesium. So they give a 750 <laughs> milligrams uh, elemental magnesium yeah, elemental. in some form, yeah. whatever it is. 
but it's not absorbed. Anything like if you were to give 200 milligrams of magnesium. So if you give 200, your magnesium is absorbed in an active manner. So there's active absorption. There's actually uh, molecules that will actively take the magnesium across the various membranes and then pop them on to transport proteins in the blood and so on. However, if you were to give a huge amount of the, of the same magnesium, you're only going to get a passive transport yeah. from the gut. And that passive transport means on the long term, you're not going to get as much absorbed, you're nowhere near as much. So anyone that does want to give a high dose, my advice is give it in divided doses in small amounts, then you're going to get the uptake. And that's what's so important. A lot of people don't understand that. And a lot of the supplements I've seen out there in the health food shops and pharmacies, they have huge quantities per tablet and I think what they need is to just have small quantities but take it more often. Yeah, yeah. And therefore you have to have it in an easily administrable form. Mm. So it's got to be in a small type of tablet. That's right. Um, or, or a powder which you can adjust the dose with. Yeah, exactly. And and the different ligands, and talking about ligands also, if you're going to have magnesium uh, that, that's absorbed well, s- some do absorb better than others. Mm. Like for example, if someone has achlorhydria, and they're trying to take a calcium supplement mm, mm. rather than uh, calcium or magnesium oxide or carbonates or whatever. Uh, they need the acid to actually hydrolyze that into its iron form. So you're better then to take a citrate, say. So calcium citrate in achlorhydric, say premenopausal or postmenopausal women even, are going to have 10 times the absorption of the calcium in the citrate form versus calcium carbonate. Now, that's a huge difference. And that actually um, is giving recognition to the fact that the stomach acid is very important. And as you know, as we grow older, stomach acid is on the decline and the stomach acid control of various things like candidiasis and helicobacter pylori and all that, it's on the decline and therefore you're more um, at risk of coming down with a, a, with a, um, a huge dose of one of these pathogenic organisms. Indeed, when you're talking about calcium citrate, it goes back to your example of giving too much at one in one dose. Um, there was some, it, it, he's done it a number of times. Reed is the researcher in um, Auckland University, uh, looking at calcium carbonate as a treatment for osteoporosis and mm. seeing an increase in cardiovascular disease. Oh, yeah. mm. And they're sort of seeing this time and time again, but the offending agent was calcium citrate. Right. which is better absorbed mm. than, car- than carbonate, but they're giving huge doses. Yeah, and you know, this is interesting because if you give a huge dose of calcium and what we need in cardiovascular disease is to increase the magnesium and potassium level inside the cell. So the, the actual uh, myocardial muscle um, has about 5,000 um, times as much magnesium inside the muscle as it does outside. And in fact... Magnesium throughout the body is an intracellular um, mineral Mm. and it must be inside, not outside. Mm. And when potassium and magnesium are inside and you've got calcium and sodium outside, then you've got this potential difference and you've got a change and you've got an iron flow. And that's the way that muscles work. That's the way that that nerves work with sodium and potassium. So you've got to have this differential across the actual membranes itself. And that is an interesting thing to contemplate because when you're giving a supplement and you want to get magnesium inside the cell, what supplement do you use? Do you give magnesium oxide, magnesium carbonate? Well, that's when the ligand comes in. Because when you've got uh, mineral transporters, 
such as orotates. Magnesium orotate is a mineral transporter. Magnesium aspartate is a mineral transporter. So that's going to actually take the mineral inside the cell. And this this research is being done by the late uh, Hans Nieper in the Silbersee Clinic in, in Germany. Uh, and I had a lot of his papers translated, and it was quite interesting to show that you could actually get the magnesium inside the cell, but it didn't just stop there. And this is what was interesting. If you were to take erotic acid as the form of a magnesium orotate, the actual erotic acid itself that delivers the magnesium inside the cells of the myocardium and other parts of the body and the muscles actually goes to the liver and starts stimulating the production of uridine monophosphate. Uridine monophosphate is then uh, converted through to cytidine monophosphate and then to uh, thymidine monophosphate. These are all the nucleic acids that are necessary for the RNA that is manufactured and used in the myocardial protein in the muscle. So what's happening is if you have an infarct or if you have some sort of damage to the muscle, or you might, might even have a thinning of the left ventricle, and you want to make more muscle in the heart, you want to repair the heart, then the erotic acid part of the magnesium orotate is starting to kickstart all of the machinery inside the heart that's going to manufacture more heart muscle. Now, this is fascinating because this is the reason why magnesium oxide and magnesium carbonate is different to magnesium orotate. Yeah. So there's a, there's, there's, it's a double whammy and it's a dual action. Not only do you get the magnesium in with magnesium orotate, but you also are able to manufacture more of the, um, the, uh, the RNA in the myocardial uh, protein. So it's like a rescue synthesis pathway. It is, yeah, yeah. which is fascinating. What was interesting to me is the the research that uh, Professor Frank Rosenfeld and um, forgive me if I say his first name wrong, Salvadore, Salvatore, mm. uh, Pepe, there are others, um, uh, using magnesium orotate. Mm. And not only is it a fixing agent, as you've discussed, uh, but the erotic acid enables a stressed heart muscle to function in a lower oxygen environment, i.e. heart yeah. failure, heart surgery, that sort of yeah. thing. And you know why that happens? Because the orotates themselves are able to move through the pentose pathway. Now, the pentose pathway is an anaerobic pathway. It doesn't require oxygen. So it's not in the mitochondria. This mm. is in the cytoplasm. Mm -hmm. So the erotic acid is stimulating the pentose shunt or the pentose pathway. And this is how we can actually get more ATP without oxygen. So when you've got an anoxic heart, in other words, it's not utilising the oxygen for whatever reason because you've had a blockage in one of the main vessels and so on, and you end up trying to, you'll get necrotic areas within that heart. This is going to be very helpful because you're actually manufacturing the ATP without oxygen. And in this respect, can I just talk about aspartate? Magnesium aspartate, particularly potassium and magnesium aspartate, you know, I've been interested in combining mm. potassium aspartate, magnesium aspartate with magnesium orotate. That is an absolute magic combination. It's been around for 20 or 30 years and it's still the number one supplement as far as I'm concerned. Well, the magnesium aspartate not only gets magnesium into the cells, but the aspartic acid or the, the aspartate, which is the ligand that we're talking about, mm -hmm. is going to go further and increase the energy aerobically in the mitochondria. So the mitochondria that are working, so you, you, it's not like there's no oxygen, mm, mm. it's going to 
increase the ability of the heart to utilize the oxygen that's there. That's there. Yeah. And in fact, if you were to take oxygen out, if you take a, um, a heart from an animal and you suspend it in a buffer and you take the oxygen out, but you put potassium, magnesium, aspartate in, mm-hmm. it's, it's going to beat instead of like for, you know, 40 seconds, it'll beat for 240 seconds just with the influence of the aspartate, which is generating more aspartic acid is going to be metabolized through to uh, ATP. I, w- I wonder what um, Professor Frank Rosenfeld used, actually. That you've got me thinking because mm. um, Frank was... Um, the initiator, if you like, of um, a very important thing for heart donor recipients um, in that previously the heart was only viable for around about four hours. But with his work, his research, it's increased to around about 12 hours. That makes it a huge uh, impact on the time allowable between donor and patient. Right. Yeah. And I'm just – you've got me thinking now. I wonder what he's been using. Well, but it means that there are these interesting – Ligands or ligands. I, I used to call them ligands. Mm. So if I go back and call them ligands, don't worry. Different so They're still the same. It you is, went to a yeah, better school. Potatoes, potatoes, <laughs> tomatoes, tomatoes. Okay. But, you know, the fact that we have got the orotates and aspartates that are doing it, and you've already got these examples, we can, by choosing the right ligand, we can get the right uh, result that mm. we want, Just not just relying on the mineral. Let's talk a little bit about magnesium diglycinate or bisglycinate, mm. more correctly. Um, and it's marketed by Albion Labs or mm. Albion Nutrition. So my clinical experience of these two supplements is that magnesium aspartate works really well as a longer-term type supplement, whereas magnesium diglycinate works really well as a fast – or I, I say the word immediate but not – but a faster thing for things like I've got a sore back, I've got mm. a headache – I've been out in the day and I've got sore muscles. But if you – so as a sort of rescue thing, if you like, mm. but but then longer term, the magnesium aspartate orotate gets the cells to use energy better. Yeah. Would you use that in that context? Well, I think you're right in one respect. I mean, the aspartate, as I've, as I've already pointed out, is going to make the cells more efficient at utilising the oxygen that's there, making the mitochondria more efficient. Yes. But that takes time. Yeah? That takes Well, it does take time, but not that much time. But the glycinate is a small molecule and it's an amino acid. Glycine is a very small amino, amino acid. Yeah. One of the smallest, exactly. So you're going to get a better absorption and utilisation more more quickly yeah. because of the actual, I believe, the size of the molecule. Yeah, but that's not to say that you can therefore use high, like overwhelmingly high dosages no. and expect no diarrhoea. People think it doesn't cause diarrhoea and that's mm. it. No, you can overwhelm the gut in, with any form. Yeah, yes, you, you can. And I think a lot of people have already said, oh, look, this supplement doesn't cause diarrhoea. Yeah, well, you take it up to no, a certain yeah, dose and you'll get see it. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> but, but, I mean, why would you use the glycinate and why would you use the orotate? or the aspartate. Well, one of the reasons is glycinate also is one of the uh, amino acids that's used in the phase two detox uh, in the liver. So if you have a liver problem and someone that needs magnesium, you'd give magnesium glycinate. And as you said, if you wanted to get a more a quick effect and you wanted to really ramp the actual magnesium up to a high level, then uh, stoichiometrically, if you look at the actual molecule of magnesium glycinate per uh, full molecule, there's more magnesium 
than there is in magnesium aspartate, which the aspartate takes up yeah, a lot of the it's a room. Huge molecule, yeah. So if you want to get magnesium in and therefore increase the blood level of magnesium, so the body will naturally take the magnesium that's in in the body and utilize it the way that it wants, then you know the magnesium glycinate is the one that that I would recommend. So I mean, they it's it's like horses for courses. Absolutely, yeah. So I remember years ago. Um, at a lecture, you saying, and you, you, I remember you made the comment, but didn't expound on it. And I had to research. Um, you, somebody asked the question about massive doses of magnesium aspartate, and you said, no, you know, you're going to run into issues with the aspartate there. Mm. And you left it. And it took me ages to sort of figure out that there's a potential if you use huge doses of magnesium aspartate or aspartic acid, um, that you might be stimulating the AMPA receptor in nerves. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. I'm, I'm not all that familiar with the actual mechanism involved with a lot of that. But on the other hand, we do know that all amino acids have various roles in the body. You know, some of them are to make um, to make insulin. Um, some of them are converted into thyroid hormone. Some of them, you know. So every every little action, when you start separating an amino acid and giving it therapeutically, you have to think. Well, wait a minute. Oh, I want this to be working on the heart, or I want this to be working on the liver. But yes. hello, what else? It's, it's going to work yeah. on a whole lot of. Other. And this is where we get the confusion with pharmacology and nutrition and biochemistry. And I've been harping on this now for thirty years. Yeah. But it really is important. Important. The more we isolate something away from its brothers and sisters and cousins, like an amino acid, when you take it out away, mm. you are going to get a pharmacological effect often. And therefore a toxicolo- toxicological effect as well. Exactly. <laughs> and for that reason, um, if, you're, if you are looking at free-form amino acids, people say, oh, why don't you put free-form amino acids in this supplement? I said, because the free-form amino acids are going to be utilised more quickly, used up, and they're not going to go into structural proteins, they're not going to go into neurotransmitters and hormones. So you're much better to give peptides, uh, and that's why you know I'm a fan of whey protein. Yep. Protein is a, it, extremely good. And now hydrolyzed whey protein, they've got it so it's not so bitter. and you can, That makes an awful lot of sense because the body is going to hang on to that and utilise the amino acids much more readily. For example, glutathione. Now, one of the best ways of taking glutathione, even though we now have supplements, is whey. And, you know, I often will give a whey supplement together with a glutathione supplement because I know they're getting a double whammy that way, you know, if you're not injecting it directly into the bloodstream. So the, the, the amino acids in the glutathione are better taken up as peptides and Peptides are utilised by the body more effectively than having a whole conglomeration of free-form amino acids, which incidentally are more ex- expensive too. If anybody's interested in looking up that how whey increases glutathionation, look at um, uh, a website by a multi-level marketing company uh, called ImmunoCal. Um, they're the people that did, the, I think it was the initial research right. um, on improving glutathione status. But you can also bring it up with things like lipoic acid and N-acetylcysteine and things like that as mm. well. But I find particularly with certain groups of patients, we won't talk about them here, but particularly with certain groups of patients that might have nutritional deficit, whey is actually a brilliant food as oh, well. Absolutely, And yeah. this is why I really like using whey. Mm. The other thing, of course, is that whey is not milk. 
No. And people automatically assume it's from a cow, therefore it's got to be milk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has yeah. different, different structures so that you don't run into the same issues necessarily that you do with milk, like it, lactose it, intolerance. Exactly. Well, it, it's a fast protein. I mean, it doesn't like casein, which is an insoluble protein in milk, and one of the major ones is going to sit in the stomach and curdle. But that doesn't happen with whey. Whey is soluble. It hits the stomach acid and the digestive enzymes get at it immediately and they you know, generate peptides and do all the things that you want. So whey is a much nicer, kinder way of getting um, the amino acids into the bloodstream, stabilising blood sugar, really important, and thereby stabilising the insulin effect. Uh, so it's, it's a much kinder way of doing things. And also there's more allergies, I believe, to casein than there are to whey mm, mm. when you get through childhood. Yeah. I think um, a subfraction of whey actually decreases eosinophil migration. Oh, yeah, so well, well, there's so many subfractions. There's the, you know, uh, beta-lactoglobulin and alpha-lactalbumin and uh, um, the bovine serum albumin and et cetera, et cetera, mm. immunoglobulins. So there's a whole lot. So whey is a composite of, of many different um, soluble proteins that are so important. Let's talk about some practical aspects of taking inorganic or organic minerals. Um, so, for instance, calcium carbonate, mm. especially, as you say, with elderly population who might be prescribed that, that's better taken with a meal. Is that right? It is. In fact, all minerals, all minerals, if you want to get absorption, take them with a meal. Don't take them on an empty stomach in general, in simply general. because... A lot of the minerals we're talking about that ionize in the stomach, they're going to grab onto an amino acid or something that's around. And if you're eating a meal, then you've got plenty of, of these molecules that it can actually lock onto and that, that they can be delivered into the body. Now, that's not to say that inorganics aren't absorbed as they are, because they are. If you look at the uh, uh, selenium selenite, uh, and so on. Yep. That is absorbed. If you look at uh, uh, the calcium hydroxyapatite, I mean, that is a, I think there's five calciums and three phosphates and one hydroxyl. Yep. Uh, this is an inorganic, but we know that it's going to increase calcium and, and so on. So it's not that every uh, inorganic mineral has to be hydrolyzed and form onto uh, a ligand. So, for instance, calcium citrate yep. is better absorbed on an empty stomach yes. Stomach versus calcium carbonate, better absorbed with a meal. Exactly. But I remember iron. I remember looking this up in Martindale's. Mm-hmm. Uh, iron is constantly being prescribed to be taken with a meal, mm. and yet that decreases absorption and causes – or sorry, with the with – the, premise that the, on the hope that it's going to reduce nausea and constipation. But indeed, if you look in Martindale's, it said, take it on an empty stomach with some form of acid, like some lemon juice. Yeah. Well, I'm, um, not, I'm not sure I agree with that, yeah. but, but that's, uh, that's just my own personal um, understanding. I think maybe that. we should look at different ligands. Well, I think that's <laughs> absolutely true. And I know that when you have an organic form of iron, uh, when it's, when it's uh, associated with some beetroot ligand or, or something like that, or, or lactate in, in a certain racemic form, uh, you will get better absorption, I think, than taking iron sulfate. And in fact, iron sulfate is going to cause irritation, inflammation, and all sorts of problems with the bowel. But that, I mean, that gets on again to the idea of... Uh, Calcium. Do we, if you have, for example, hemochromatosis or iron overload, people say, oh, that's all right, just take calcium, and that inhibits the iron uptake. Now, we know that calcium will inhibit 
iron uptake. And we know that ascorbic acid also increases the uptake mm. of iron. Mm. However, if you've got hemochromatosis, which is about 10% of Australians, I think, have iron overload, there's no other way around it. If you're going to have a ferritin level of 700 or 800 or 900 creeping up, there's only one way to deal with it, and that's venous section. Yep, flip bottom, and, and yeah. It doesn't matter what supplements you take or what you do. So if someone tries to say, oh, look, I, what I do is I take, because we know we have to try and prevent the oxidation of iron in the bloodstream. It's a real nasty thing, and it is nasty. But taking antioxidants and all that is not the answer. You no. have got to get the ferritin down. And that by taking and giving 500 mils of blood, you are removing 50 milligrams of elemental iron in the form of ferritin. So that means for every 500, and you do that every couple of weeks, yep. you're slowly going to move it down. But to me... With that, a low iron diet. With a low iron diet, <laughs> so you're not... Yeah, There's no point having absorbing. a high iron diet with some calcium. No. <laughs> and, you know, you can cut out the grog at the same time and sugar. I mean, there's a whole lot of things you can do in the diet that yep. will that will change the iron uptake, particularly if there's inflammatory conditions, so you, you end up with a high iron because of that. So uh, I just thought I'd mention that because a lot of people think, oh, no, I can handle a hemochromatosis simply by what I do nutritionally. Uh, I say, no, you no, can't. No, you can't. Get, get them along and, and, and get the blood drawn. No. So, Bob, Talk to me about some myths that are propagated in the media um, and also some salient points that we should be thinking about with mineral mm. supplementation. Well, one of the classics is if you end up as a, uh, a renal calculi former and you get multiple uh, kidney stones, so to speak, they say, oh, you better lay off the calcium because, you know, you get these calcium oxalates and calcium phosphates and there's many different types of kidney stones, though mainly they're oxalates and phosphates. And it's not so because calcium is not a problem. In fact, when you are laying down a lot of kidney stones, the most important thing is water. You've got to hydrate well to keep the kidneys moving. Add to that magnesium and potassium. They're really important, but then so is calcium. So all of these minerals are really important to have in the equation. And and calcium citrate makes sense. And in fact, they have found that if you take calcium citrate and you're a, a, a renal stone former, you get a reduction in the stone forming over a period of, of several years. If you add a little bit of B6 as well, so you're taking magnesium yep. at, at, say, uh, 250 milligrams twice daily, take some vitamin B6, say 25 milligrams twice daily, uh, and um, some citrate, uh, calcium citrate um, or citric potassium citrate is good. Then you're changing, and a lot of people will no longer be stone formers. But the point that I wanted to get there was that the calcium itself is not contraindicated, whereas people think, oh, because I'm laying down calcium, I'd better be careful and not take calcium. We need calcium. No, that's right. The the um, it, it, it seems to be, you know, looking for a scapegoat. Um, if you have an oral supplement, that supplement was going to go straight from your mouth to your kidneys, whereas the real issue was, was bone loss. Mm. Um, if you prevent the bone loss, you prevent that calcium leaching out of the bones mm. and having to be excreted in the kidneys. Exactly. And, you know, um, it's much more important yeah. to, to get and rid of salt. Yeah, and there's many other hormonal, you know, controllers of that as well. I'm not saying it's as simple as just giving a little bit of calcium, mm. but... I think the wrong thing was blamed, and no, we tend to right. do that. Yeah. It's kind of like we could go off on another podcast here with cholesterol, yeah. but <laughs> but, <laughs> no, no. but <laughs> let's stick to minerals. Yes. Um, talk to me about phytic acid, though. Yeah, well, phytic acid's an interesting one because 
Um, everybody thinks that because of the fibre and the phytates in the fibre, uh, say wheat germ, wheat bran and all those sort of things, if you take 16 grams of, of uh, wheat bran and the phytic acid in that is not going to tie up the calcium, magnesium uh, and, and potassium, it, it probably, the only one that I know that it upsets is zinc balance. But phytate is not such a bad person. And, you know, we're saying these days we need lots of fibre. Um, we need fibre for the microbiome and for the generation of the short-chain fatty acids in the lower bowel to keep it acidic. And that means, that, you know, we've got to be eating things like asparagus and onions and, and leek, uh, artichokes. Uh, anything where there's soluble and insoluble fibre is fine. So that doesn't really go together with, well, hang on, it's going to upset our mineral balance mm, because mm, it doesn't. Mm. And the whole point is that if you've got a balanced diet and it's good seasonal food, uh, and it's got full of phytonutrients and it doesn't come out of a packet. Uh, the carbohydrates are not refined. It hasn't got sugar added. It hasn't got artificial colorings, flavors. It's not genetically modified. If you go through all of that, then when you actually take normal food that you feel like, you know, and you're not eating a lot of garbage food, your body will tell you what, what it wants to eat. On a hot summer's day, it's going to want to have a, a fruit salad Cooling for breakfast. Fruit, yeah. And in the middle of winter, it's going to have to have oats. You know what I mean? You've got to listen to your body. And this is something that recurs with speaking with you and Dr. Mark Donohoe is seasonality. Mm. We've lost it. Yeah. In our convenience-based so lifestyle, we've lost this seasonality of our diet. Exactly. Which is it's just really interesting. Well, the supermarkets now are going to furnish you with whatever you want at any time of the year. Middle of winter, pineapples, fantastic. <laughs> Let's go, you know. And and even the idea of juicing, which is which has come up, you know, I'm dead against this juicing because of the huge amounts of sugar that people are taking. It's okay to eat an apple and it's okay to have an orange and it's okay to have, you know, a punnet of blueberries. I mean, it's, it's fantastic to do that. But as soon as you start juicing and getting, you know, the equivalent of eight or nine apples, uh, you're starting to get huge yeah, amounts hit. without the fibre. So you've taken the fibre out and all you've got is the, the fructose, basically. And fructose is much more harmful than glucose. And therefore, you, you know, I'm, I think if you want fruit, have fruit, but eat it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And berries especially. But even, you know, if you attack the berries, I mean, even berries with the sorbet, certain berries with sorbitol and things mm. like that, you can even do yourself a disharm if you have too much of, of them in you, one hit. Well, you can have it's too much of anything. And, exactly. Mm. I mean, if a little's good, more is not necessarily better for you. And we just discussed that, I think, with the way in which we take minerals. You know, don't take 750 to 1,000 milligrams of magnesium at once. Unless you want. Divide it. Unless you are having a colonoscopy. Oh, unless you want. Exactly. <laughs> Glycoprep, fine. But it's really funny how people will go, oh, there's magnesium <clears throat> oxide in a supplement that's 20 milligrams. Oh, no, it's going to give a bowel clean. No. It's just, it's nonsensical. And yet people have this light switch mentality. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's on or off rather than dose response. But the same happened with tablets that had lactose in it, 20 milligrams. Oh. I mean, 50 milligrams of lactose. And we know that, you know, you can have grams, grams. of lactose even if you're lactose intolerant. So, yeah, I mean, people get the, the wrong end of the stick sometimes. Can you take our listeners through a little bit about calcium and magnesium balance? Because there's this perpetuating 
premise of the two to one calcium to magnesium yeah. ratio. I've never ever found that in any food. No, and I've never found it in any literature. When it's a normal ratio, I it's mean, in you, the cell, right? It, it's in the cell, and the body knows how to handle. And as long as we don't go overboard, now if you were to take you know, huge quantities like five grams of magnesium or five grams of calcium and, and hardly any of the other, then yes, you'll have problems. But whenever you've got, you know, say 1.5 grams of calcium and, and 600 milligrams of, of magnesium a day, you're not going to have any problems with imbalance. But when you get down to some of the, the smaller trace elements and things, yes, you can have a problem. For example, if you've got a huge copper intake, uh, from uh, drinking hot water out of the hot water system or from having uh, food sources of copper and you haven't got any zinc to balance it, you could have a five to one copper to zinc ratio. This is very harmful for you. Whereas what we need is a 10 to one zinc to copper ratio. The zinc must be higher than the copper. Yep. So then it comes in. So when it comes to, to trace elements, yes, but when it comes to some of the basic uh, minerals such as um, calcium and magnesium. With potassium, we need to be careful of just the amount. I mean, too much potassium. I mean, um, if you take potassium instead of uh, sodium chloride, you have potassium chloride. and You have to be fairly careful not to go too high in potassium that isn't balanced with sodium. And that's the whole point, even with hypertension. I mean, people say, oh, I can't take any sodium because I'm sodium sensitive. But if you have the potassium balancing the sodium, it's not too bad. So by having them together, the sodium chloride and potassium chloride, um, it makes a lot of sense. When we, You mentioned trace minerals before, and mm. there's some minerals that are very hard to assay. We don't have agreed methods of measurement. And this can lead to issues, particularly when you get pieces of research um, published and, and taken up by media. It was a paper uh, talking about a particular form of chromium, and then it was transposed onto chromium supplements that are right. available in the market. But the type of chromium that they used in the paper was totally different. It was uh, chromium propionate, which is easily oxidised to a really bad form of chromium, yeah. the chromium-6. Yeah. And yet we use the chromium-3 very often, either in chromic chloride, which is the poor sister, or better absorbed either in the, the chromium when it's joined to B3 or picolinate. Yes. Talk to our listeners about, take us through this quandary and, and how myths are perpetuated. Yeah, well, it's it's right that you say that the chromium-6, I mean, is not the form that you want. And often you'll get the media picking out mm. a, a bad reaction that happened from chromium and we need to be very careful or you're in a mine and miners are sniffing something and if you're taking it in, in through the lung, it's obviously different, you know, to having it in food and, and so on. So there is a lot of confusion by the media. But I think that um, a lot of companies now are very aware of that. And when you talk about the natural form of chromium, you think of glucose tolerance factor. And that is uh, um, chromium uh, with the ligands, uh, niacin or nicotinic acid, uh, which is a natural form. And that's the way that we should. And if not, then uh, picolinic acid is also another good one. So it's it's not a problem for people that are in the know. It's only a problem when people read the newspapers and find that they're confusing not only the form like chromium-6, but also the amounts. I mean, you can handle a certain amount of a very small amount of something, but if you have a huge amount, it's, it's actually quite toxic. And when it comes to toxic minerals, it's really interesting to note that some of the 
systems in our body that work so effectively, like uh, in digestion. If we want to digest, uh, we've got carboxypeptidase A. Now, that contains zinc in the middle. Uh, we have hemoglobin that contains iron in the middle. So we have a lot of, um, of coordination complexes that are dependent on these trace elements. As soon as we're leaded or mercury or arsenic or copper or some of these in huge amounts, they actually replace some of these really important trace elements. And when they replace them, those particular functions that were being carried out in the body naturally, they lock down. And that is a huge problem. And this is why it's so important to actually help detoxification. And you can detoxify, and I'm sure we've, we've talked many times on detoxification. I won't go into it now. But it is important to understand that the trace elements have to be unencumbered with all these other uh, toxins that are around, that are, that are in the air, in the water, in our food supply, uh, that we can be contaminated with that can re replace those, um, for example, in, in um, uh, glutathione peroxidase, we need selenium. So, you know, these are absolutely critical. And without those trace elements, if the, if the toxic minerals come in, we can have some huge problems. And that's why it's important to and, recognize and this, it. And this is why it, it's so essential to have nutrient-dense, calorie-poor foods in our diet. Exactly. Um, to get all these minerals so that we can run these enzyme systems to help detoxify our bodies. Yeah. And, and like we said before, seasonally, we have foods that generate a different combination of trace elements, vitamins, minerals, and so on. So if you sweat in the summer and you eat the, the fruits and things of the summer, it's going to give you back what you've sweated out. And in the winter, you want to hang on to things and you need different sorts of minerals and you need to eat, you know, tubers and things that are below the ground, not above the ground. So, uh, yeah, nature knows best, basically. So in wrapping up, though, when you're therapeutically using a minerally dense diet plus some well-chosen supplements. Um, so for athletes long-term, you'd choose things like um, potassium, magnesium, aspartate, orotate. Yes. Short-term, say for migraine sufferers, headaches, PMT, migraine without order, mm -hmm. without aura, forgive me. Um, <laughs> there's uh, magnesium diglycinate. Yep. Um, Bones, osteoporosis, that's a quandary. We harp on about calcium, but we forget about the other minerals that are incorporated yeah. into bone. Yes, we need the, the, the boron and we need zinc and we need copper and we need B6. There's a whole lot of them. But, you know, you obviously, uh, you know, you need to take that in consideration. And many manufacturers have. So uh, if you get a good calcium supplement, it's got all that in with the vitamin D. And Absolutely. I think this, this is the key is no, don't just think about a saviour mineral. No. We are... We are human bodies who use, as you say, the biological spare parts. Yeah, <laughs> biological spare parts and orchestras. This is biochemistry. This is nutrition. All the rest is pharmacology. When we go into single agents, we're dealing with pharmacology more or less, and that's why all the clinical trials worldwide that look at nutrition with a pharmacological bent, they're all completely wrong and they need to be all done again. We won't go into that. I've done it before. <laughs> Salient points which we yeah. must all listen to and heed. Yes. Dr. Robert Bust, Bob, thank you so much for joining us once again on FX Medicine. It's a pleasure, Andrew. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This is Andrew from FX Medicine. 
We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. Hi, this is Stacey the Babymaker Robert, and I would like to invite you to join me this year in an industry first. I have put together more than a decade of my clinical experience into developing the first online mentoring program that deals with the ever-growing area of natural fertility. My Babymaker Network Mentoring Program is an online interactive program where you will learn how to address all aspects of fertility issues. You will learn how to successfully navigate the most challenging cases and walk away with the knowledge that every specialist in the area of natural fertility must possess in order to feel confident and competent in the clinical setting. If you are ready to be a part of an atmosphere that helps you build your practice while helping couples build their family, I look forward to getting to know you in the Baby Maker Mentoring Program. A special seminar price will be offered in February at the Going From Unexplained to Pregnant event, and the program itself will launch in March. Please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab for more information and to register.